Hello and welcome to Killing Time, a podcast about conflicts and battles that have bent the arc of history. I'm your host, Chip Wagar. Thanks for joining me for this military history podcast series. Have you ever heard of the term doubling down? We hear it a lot nowadays in the media. But did you know that the original meaning of the term comes from gambling, specifically the card game of blackjack? In blackjack, it means that after being dealt your cards... You may double your current bet at your turn, in return for which you get one more card and then no more. In what situations this is allowed or advisable varies somewhat depending on the casino, but if no card counting is done, it's usually a good move on all hands totaling 11 and some totaling 10. There's a good chance that the next card will be a 10 or a face card. And if it is, you'll be at 20 or 21, and you'll double your winnings. It's a percentage move, a calculated risk, because if the next card isn't what you want and expect, well, then you may be stuck. The dealer might beat you, and then you've lost twice as much. But imagine for a moment if the stakes were much, much higher than just money. Imagine that if you double down you may lose vast numbers of men, perhaps your own life. Would you like to play that game? Or more than that, your country. In a single roll of the dice or flip of a card, you could lose your life, thousands of other lives, a war, your country, and way of life for your children and perhaps generations coming after. Would you have the nerve to risk everything? Napoleon once said, between a battle won and a battle lost, the distance is immense, and there stand empires. The battle we're going to discuss today, Midway, is one such battle where you could say the fate of empires hung in the balance, and was decided by a metaphorical flip of the card in four minutes the fate of two major empires was decided. No less a person than Winston Churchill said of the American victory at Midway, and I'm going to quote, The annals of war at sea present no more intense, heart-shaking shock than this battle, in which the qualities of the United States Navy and Air Force and the American race shone forth in splendor, the bravery and self-devotion of the American airmen and sailors, and the nerve and skill of their leaders, was the foundation of all. In my opinion, it's one of the four most decisive naval battles in history. One of these we've already discussed in this podcast series, Trafalgar, that occurred in 1805 launching the British Empire. The second, 
in my opinion, is Lepanto, an obscure naval battle to most people. But it was between the surging Ottoman Turkish Empire and the Holy Roman Empire in 1571 that stopped the takeover of the Mediterranean world by the Turkish Empire. The first one, in time, was the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, in which the Roman Republic's navy defeated the Egyptian navy and empire of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and led to the establishment of the Roman Empire under Augustus Caesar. Midway is that big and looms that large in the military naval history of the world. The Pacific Ocean is by far the largest of all the oceans on the planet. Indeed, it covers over 30% of the surface of the Earth, 60 million square miles, more than twice the water volume of the Atlantic Ocean. Its basin is larger than all the land masses of Europe of, of the Earth put together and contains over 25,000 islands. It's in this vast space that our story takes place and gives it a unique military significance. Control over this ocean in 1942 depended upon the ability of a nation, an empire, to be able to project military power, naval power, over such a vast area. To the United States and Japan, control over the Pacific was a vital security requirement, but especially to Japan, since as an island nation without a vast interior landmass to protect it, as, is, as the United States does, it was even more crucial. Midway was fought out between the United States and Japan between June 4th and June 7th, 1942. Let me begin by placing the time and impact of the battle in context. And by that I mean in the context of the war in which the battle was fought, which was, of course, the Second World War. That war, the largest human conflict ever fought in, the his- in history, was really two simultaneous wars in different parts of the world. The European War and the Pacific War. The Pacific War was fought against the Japanese Empire, while the European War was fought against Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. Although Japan, Germany, and Italy were each part of an alliance system known as the Axis, in truth Germany and Italy contributed virtually nothing to the Pacific War waged by Japan alone. Japan had been fighting a land war in Asia against China since 1937, with little contribution or assistance needed by the Japanese Navy. The Japanese conquest of most of coastal China had alarmed the United States, but had not resulted in war between the two countries. In the summer of 1941, however, after the Nazi conquest of France and the Netherlands and Europe, Japan forcibly occupied their colonies in the South Pacific area, Indonesia and Indochina. That was too much for America, who saw 
a predatory, aggressive Japan, absorbing and dominating a vast Pacific empire, hostile to American trade and influence that would stretch from Manchuria in the north to Australia in the south. In response, the United States froze Japanese assets in the U.S. and established an embargo of oil to Japan on August 1, 1941. The rapidly escalating hostility between the U.S. and Japan had still not led to war in the months between August and December, but both governments began to consider a war between them as inevitable. The Japanese government began considering a preemptive attack on the United States, and the American government and military establishment began considering how far it was prepared to go to protect its interests in the Asian Pacific. Now, you might have noticed that at the beginning of this podcast, I used the the word empire with respect to both Japan and the United States. And you might have wondered about my use of that word as applied to the United States, since most Americans believe the word empire has a largely negative connotation. But that wasn't always the case. In fact, the United States had been engaged in an expansionary and some might call imperialist policy since its war with Mexico in 1846. Its war with Spain in 1898 resulted in the acquisition of several territories that had been formerly colonies of the defeated Spanish Empire. Rather than liberating them, the United States had incorporated them as territories, but not states, since that war. It had been controversial, to be sure. This is how the United States came into possession of Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. The U.S. had put down a Filipino independence movement at the turn of the century by force, and the question of Filipino independence, which would eventually come in 1948, after the war, had been a hot issue in American politics for decades. But in 1941, it was American territory. So was Hawaii, which had been annexed as a territory also in 1898, after a coup by American sugar planters in the islands had overthrown the native government with the help of U.S. Marines. Unlike the Philippines, which eventually became independent, Hawaii became a state in 1959, but in 1941 it was simply another territory administered by the American government in Washington. At about the same time, in the early 20th century, a rising, modernized Japan began to acquire its own territories, mainly at the expense of China, but also after the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 and 05 from Russia. Japan acquired Korea, Taiwan, then called Formosa, and certain ports and coastal territory uh, on the mainland in Manchuria. And while American moral misgivings and enthusiasm for territorial expansion had cooled by the 1930s, Japan's ambitions had not. As early as the 1920s, the naval staffs of both countries kept a wary eye on one another and made plans for the possibility that one day there might be a war and a struggle for supremacy in the Pacific. With the invasion of Manchuria in 1931, a Chinese province, 
and the onset of the Sino-Japanese War that began in 1937, the possibility of war between the U.S. and Japan dramatically increased. With the decline of Russia and China, which by 1930s Russia was the Soviet Union, both Japan and the United States had, by then, constructed and maintained large battle fleets in the Pacific to defend against attack by the other. The United States, however, required a large navy in the Atlantic as well, and during the Depression of the 1930s had slacked off for a time in building and maintaining its navy. As the perceived menace of Japan began to loom large with the beginning of war with China in 1937, and the very real possibility that China might collapse, Franklin Roosevelt, a former Navy man himself, decided that modernizing and expanding the Navy could not be put off any longer. Japan, by contrast, had a larger fleet in the Pacific than the Americans in 1941, including 12 aircraft carriers of varying sizes, 10 battleships, with seven more carriers then under construction and three more battleships on the way. The U.S. had just six aircraft carriers based in the Pacific, 10 battleships, 15 heavy cruisers, 10 light cruisers, and 95 destroyers. And while the war in the Atlantic would not be comparable to that in the Pacific in terms of naval requirements, because it was largely a a submarine war against Germany, and there was also the uh, British fleet to help, there was a desperate need for destroyers and other warships for the Atlantic fleet that competed with the Pacific fleet. Here was the key, though, with its much greater industrial and shipbuilding capacity, And thanks to the impulse given by President Roosevelt, the U.S. had 11 aircraft carriers under construction at various stages and 15 new battleships coming, most of which would eventually see service in the Pacific, as it turned out. In 1942, the United States Atlantic Fleet consisted of seven battleships, one fleet and seven escort carriers, three heavy and nine light cruisers, and 76 destroyers. So in terms of fleets, the United States Navy in the Pacific was inferior in number, and in many cases in quality, with that of the Japanese Navy at the outset of the war. On December 7, 1941, the Japanese fleet had suddenly attacked the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor. The attack succeeded in damaging four battleships and destroying four more, basically all of the battleships that the United States had in the Pacific. Only two other battleships in the Pacific were afloat that were not at Pearl Harbor. The attack also did severe damage but didn't sink the cruisers and destroyers based there. Significantly, however, the U.S. aircraft carriers and their support vessels were not anchored at Pearl Harbor that day and therefore escaped damage. Aside from Hawaii, the other major military base for military and naval power uh, in the Pacific was the Philippines, which, as I mentioned, the United States had taken from Spain in 1898 and ruled essentially as a colony ever since. After December 7th, 
the Japanese wiped out the U.S. Air Force on the islands and began an invasion the next day, December 8th. By January 5th, the American Filipino Army had been defeated and forced to withdraw to the Bataan Peninsula and then the island of Corregidor, where it surrendered on May 5th, 1942, just a month before this battle. The only major U.S. outpost left in the Pacific in the summer of 1942 was Hawaii at that point. The occupation of the U.S. naval, air, and military base in Hawaii would have essentially pushed back U.S. military power to the west coast of the U.S. mainland, a distance of about 2,400 miles from Honolulu. Had the Japanese occupied Hawaii, they would have used Pearl Harbor, Hawaii's military bases and airfields as a forward point to defend the perimeter around the Japanese home islands some 6,202 miles to the west and outward from Tokyo. These facts and these possibilities did not escape the consideration of the Japanese military establishment after the attack on Pearl Harbor. In early 1942, the Supreme Commander of the Japanese Imperial Navy, Admiral Isoruku Yamamoto, devised a plan to eliminate the remaining U.S. naval power in the Pacific, its carrier fleet, and seize the Hawaiian Islands for Japan by means of a complex plan of attack that we'll discuss in more detail in a few minutes. And why not? Whatever the debate within the Japanese government about how to proceed after Pearl Harbor, and there was one, the necessity of taking the islands was resolved after the famous Doolittle Raid on April 18, 1942, when the U.S. aircraft carrier Hornet launched 16 B-25 land bombers that struck Tokyo. The raid did no significant strategic damage to the capital city, but confirmed the need to eliminate the American carriers and naval air power from their forward bases to secure Japan from American counterattacks. The Pacific Ocean was simply too vast to surveil and know exactly where either side's fleets and ships were located. Remember, there's, there were no satellites then. Radar and radio signals had a very limited range. The aircraft of the day were also limited to a couple hundred miles. Finally, even if radio traffic was within range and could be overheard, tracking where the radio traffic was coming from was also too primitive to determine the location of the other side's ships, particularly if they were moving in radio silence, as Hornet had done. Basically, all that could be known was almost by chance. A sighting by a submarine, or aircraft, or merchant ships pinpoints of light in an ocean of darkness. But if the American carriers could be destroyed and the island bases taken, Japan could be assured of relative safety, at least for a time. One thing was for sure. American carriers and aircraft roaming the Pacific Ocean, able to strike anywhere at any time, could not be tolerated. One of the signal features of naval power is the expense of building a navy and the time it takes to do it. Only a few nations on the planet had the economic strength in the 1930s and the need to build and maintain battle fleets of truly prodigious size and power. Britain, 
France, the United States, and Japan all had world-class fleets at the outbreak of the war. But by 1941, France was out of the war, and Britain needed her fleet in home waters, in the Atlantic, to defend against the German Navy and U-boat threat. In the Pacific, therefore, it was pretty much the American and Japanese navies that dominated the ocean. Like armies, fleets have to be mobilized in time of war, but unlike an army that can conscript and train men in a matter of months, powerful warships can take years to build. So in the event of a sudden war, each side is essentially limited to whatever they have available, perhaps for years, until new ships can replace those that were lost. Loss of huge, complex, and expensive ships was a disaster for the side that suffered defeat. The loss of a single battleship or aircraft carrier would drain the treasury and take a year or more, even with the most expedited construction, to replace. The United States had suffered a disaster at Pearl Harbor as far as its surface fleet of battleships were concerned. It would do a remarkable job in the years following replacing them with far more powerful and modern battleships, but at the time of Midway it had nothing but air power from what bases remained and, what, and its carriers and submarines. All this to say, before Pearl Harbor, the Japanese enjoyed superiority over the United States in the Pacific, and after Pearl Harbor, Japan continued to have superiority with their carrier fleet and supremacy when it came to their capital ships, the battle fleet of battleships and heavy cruisers. Now a word about naval power in this period, because the Battle of Midway would complete an evolution in naval warfare that had begun in the 1920s with the conception and construction of aircraft carriers as the supreme weapon in the naval arsenal. On March 20, 1922, the U.S. Navy had commissioned its first ever aircraft carrier, the USS Langley, by converting an old coal ship into a flat top. On October 17, 1922, the first aircraft was successfully launched and recovered from the Langley. The Japanese were similarly interested in the concept, launching their first aircraft carrier only months later, the Hosho, in December 1922. Initially, like many military innovations, the aircraft carrier was regarded with skepticism by the naval establishment as compared to the battleship. A curiosity, really. A ship with limited capabilities that was crucially, utterly vulnerable to the big guns of a capital ship. Doctrine and tactics followed slowly in the interwar years, but as younger naval commanders rose in the ranks, by the 1930s the possibilities of projecting air power, even in a large battle fleet, became accepted by the operational strategists of the day as increasingly likely to be the decisive edge. Nonetheless, lessons would still have to be learned. One of them was the myth that a well-designed armored battleship, bristling with anti-aircraft guns and plated with 8, 10, or 12-inch thick steel, could not be sunk by aircraft alone. 
That myth was put to rest on November 11, 1941, when a British carrier launched a surprise aerial attack on the Italian Navy at Toronto, severely damaging three Italian battleships, one of which was eventually lost and never put to sea again. On December 7th, the annihilation of the U.S. battleship fleet at Pearl Harbor was accomplished by carrier-launched aircraft alone. This was followed on December 10th by the sinking of the British battleships Prince of Wales and Repulse off Malaysia by Japanese land-based aircraft in combination with carrier-based torpedo planes launched by the Japanese Navy. If there was any doubt about the vulnerability even of capital ships to air power before the outbreak of the war in the Pacific, there could be no illusions anymore. Both the Japanese and the Americans understood that the carrier, if protected against surface or submarine attack, was now the supreme warship. Battleships would still have a role against other surface ships or pounding land defenses in preparation for a marine assault, but against an aircraft carrier, perhaps a hundred miles away, they were massive sitting ducks. So while the destruction of the U.S. battle fleet at Pearl Harbor had been an immense loss and psychological shock to the United States, Admiral Yamamoto was dismayed that not a single carrier had been sunk, and all the U.S. carriers were still at large. In this sense, in his mind, Pearl Harbor had been a tactical success, but an operational failure. His misgivings intensified in the months that followed as he pondered how to destroy the U.S. carriers once and for all, capped by the Doolittle raid that proved his point as far as he was concerned. If the United States could attack the Japanese home islands out of nowhere, they could attack anywhere in the Pacific out of nowhere. Something had to be done. Something would be done. The Japanese Supreme Commander, Yamamoto, would double down on his preemptive strike at Pearl Harbor with another attack designed to destroy America's carrier fleet. On the American side, other than the morale boost of the Doolittle Raid, the U.S. had little to cheer about in June 1942. They had sustained a heavy defeat in and loss of the Philippines. The first American offensive, Guadalcanal and the Solomon Islands, would not take place until August 1942 and would rage for six months after that until February 1943, until it was finally over. Savage fighting that ebbed and flowed either way marked that grisly campaign, but that had not yet even begun. The U.S. was on the defensive and losing the war in the Pacific at that point. So was Britain. What Churchill called the greatest military disaster in British history, the fall of Singapore, had taken place in February 1942, shortly after Pearl Harbor. The Japanese were in Indonesia and New Guinea, threatening Australia. Oh, 
that song, if you're interested in uh, what it is and where it came from, is Kimigayo, the Japanese national anthem. It's difficult for Americans today, or for that matter anyone, to appreciate the fear and even hysteria that gripped the American people after Pearl Harbor, Bataan, Corregidor, and other defeats in the Pacific. But it was serious. In one of the darkest chapters in American history, American citizens of Japanese descent were rounded up in Hawaii and California and essentially imprisoned in camps where they were detained for the duration of the war. American men flocked to recruitment centers in droves to volunteer, indignant and fearful of the Japanese menace, Fear of a Japanese landing on the coast of California or Alaska triggered numerous false alarms and a pervasive climate of paranoia. We tend to look back on earlier times in history with a false sense of inevitability, don't we? You know, that what happened was bound to have happened. But in the summer of 42, it wasn't regarded as paranoia. They really were after us and knocking on the door. Another defeat, this one at sea, would occur before Midway, that in the fullness of time would turn out to be a Pyrrhic victory for Japan, but it didn't seem so at the time. On May 4th through the 8th, 1942, after intercepting Japanese military communications, the Nimitz uh, and the U.S. Naval Command in Pearl Harbor learned of an impending Japanese attack on Port Mosby in New Guinea, preparatory to a supposed invasion of Australia. A joint Australian and American fleet, including two American carriers, were moved to oppose the invasion. It was the first naval battle in history in which the ships of the opposing sides never had sight of one another. Two Japanese fleet carriers and one light carrier were also engaged. The result was the loss of the U.S. carrier Lexington, which was heavily damaged and scuttled, as well as heavy damage to the carrier Yorktown. Two Japanese carriers, Shokaku and Zuikaku, were also damaged but not sunk. Nonetheless, these two carriers would be unavailable at Midway due to the repairs that were needed. Yorktown, amazingly, was repaired in time to participate, as we'll see. Nonetheless, the outcome was deemed to be another Japanese naval victory, at least in a tactical sense, and in terms of vessels sunk. So this was the situation a month before Midway, with the United States on the defensive, waiting for where the Japanese Navy would next strike, and the Japanese contemplating how they could strike a crippling blow that would assure their own security and supremacy in the Pacific. So let's now consider the personality of the commanders who would play decisive roles in this battle, and I'll begin with Admiral Yamamoto. Isoruku Yamamoto was 57 years old at the time of Midway. He attended the Japanese Naval Academy, from which he graduated in 1904, just in time to serve as an officer on a cruiser during the Russo-Japanese War that broke out that same year. In the Battle of Tsushima, he was wounded and lost the index and middle fingers of his left hand when his ship was repeatedly hit by Russian warships. By 1916, he had reached the rank of lieutenant commander after further education at the Naval Staff College. 
1919, he came to the United States and studied at Harvard University until 1921. He spoke English fluently and enjoyed his time in the U.S., touring much of the country. He was twice posted to Washington, D.C. as naval attaché, further cementing his ties to the United States, and he made many American friends and acquaintances. On one memorable visit to Texas, he saw the vast oil fields pumping a seemingly limitless supply of oil that made a significant impression on him, since by then the fleets of the world depended on petroleum and Japan had essentially no similar resources to maintain and power its own fleet. By 1923, he was promoted to the rank of captain and was part of a Japanese delegation that visited the U.S. Naval War College in 1924. It's supremely ironic that of all the people in the Japanese military establishment, Yamamoto would be the one delegated to deal with the United States and make war on much of the American naval establishment that he personally knew. It was in that year that Yamamoto's interest in naval aviation caused him to change his specialty from gunnery. Eventually, he became the commander of the aircraft carrier Akagi, one of the carriers that would be involved at Midway. By 1930, he attained the rank of Rear Admiral, and by 1934, of Vice Admiral. Yamamoto was responsible for a number of innovations in Japanese uh, naval aviation. Although he's remembered for his association with aircraft carriers due to Pearl Harbor and Midway, he also uh, did much to influence the development of long-range land-based bombers, including the Mitsubishi G3M and G4M. He wanted bombers with long range and fighters with long range. And eventually, Japan provided him uh, with such aircraft, but they did so by limiting the amount of armor and protection on these planes to achieve light weight, which in turn led to long range and maneuverability. These planes were lightly constructed, and when fully fueled, they were especially vulnerable to enemy fire. The G4M got the nickname, quote, the flying cigarette lighter, unquote, by American fighter pilots for this reason. But the range of the G3M and the G4M contributed to demand for great range in a fighter aircraft, and this drove the production of the A6M0 fighter aircraft, which was a fabulous plane in 1941 42 especially for its range and its acrobatic maneuverability. But again, both qualities were purchased at the expense of light construction and flammability that later in the war contributed to very high casualty rates for the Zero. Curiously for a warrior, Yamamoto was often at odds with his government's aggressive imperialistic policy that had emerged in the late 19th century. He was opposed to the war with China that broke out in the 1930s, for example, and felt that a war with the United States would be tantamount to national suicide. One of his quotes I'm going to read to you now uh, kind of gives you an idea uh, of what his thinking was. 
quote, I felt from the start that America was not likely to relinquish positions established at the cost of such sacrifices, and I pressed the view that a high degree of preparation and willingness to make sacrifices would be necessary on our side. But everybody here always persists in facile optimism until the very worst actually happens. Unquote. As Japan moved towards war during 1940, Yamamoto gradually moved towards strategic as well as tactical innovations, again with mixed results. Prompted by a lot of young, talented officers, he organized what we'll talk about later, the um, Kido Butai, consolidating into a tremendous striking force, Japan's six largest carriers, into one unit. Um, I say mixed results because although... That gave the carrier force an incredible striking power. It also put them into a concentrated compact area or target, which would have fateful consequences later on at Midway. By 1938, when Japan joined Nazi Germany in the tripartite pact, uh, Yamamoto's criticism drew the anger and displeasure of many in the army and the navy. He was placed under surveillance by the military junta that had come to power and then was assigned as commander-in-chief of the fleet, at least in part by the desire to send him to sea and remove him from Tokyo and the affairs of government. Also to preserve his life from assassination, which happened quite a bit in Japan during this era, uh, to people who disagreed with the military uh, government. He became a full admiral in 1940. He was popular within the fleet and the Navy High Command. He had a cordial relationship with the Emperor as well uh, that served him well, as you can imagine. Senior commanders in the Navy knew about his misgivings about a war with the United States, but they respected him for speaking his mind openly and saying the truth as he saw it. I'll read you another quote from this time that he had which gave you his viewpoints on war with the United States. Quote, anyone who has seen the auto factories in Detroit and the oil fields in Texas knows that Japan lacks the national power for a naval race with America. Yamamoto's reluctance for war with the United States did not entirely stem from just his time in the country or, you know, friends he'd made in the U.S., but from an appreciation of the immense reserve potential of the United States once war came. He thought the chance of a quick war and a favorable peace with the United States was very unlikely, and a long war he didn't think Japan could survive. In his mind, Japan could never invade and defeat an enormous continental power such as the United States, but the U.S. could eventually defeat, invade, and occupy Japan, which is of course, what eventually happened. He understood the psychology of the American people and their government far more than his colleagues from his time in the United States. That once provoked into war, the United States would not rest until it had annihilated Japan. Nonetheless, it was Yamamoto who led the planning and the execution of the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor once the course was set by the government and endorsed by the emperor. He viewed it as his sacred duty, and he did it 
with what he had to the best of his ability. Now let's talk about the American commander, Chester Nimitz, who was also 57 years old at the time of Midway. American listeners and don't know what that was, that is the Navy uh, hymn, Anchors Away. He was born in the hill country in Fredericksburg, Texas, to a poor family. He um, initially applied to West Point in hopes of becoming a milita- an army officer, but no appointments were available. His congressman told him that he had one appointment available for the Naval Academy, but that he intended to award it to the best qualified candidate. Nimitz felt that this was his only opportunity for further education due to his family's poverty, and he spent extra time studying to earn the appointment, and he was appointed to the Naval Academy in 1901. At the Naval Academy, the young Nimitz excelled in math and in physical exercise. He was a natural athlete and stoked, uh, stroked the crew in his first uh, class year. He graduated with distinction on January 30th, 1905, 7th in a class of 114. Nonetheless, his naval career did not start well. He got seasick on the battleship Ohio, which was his first assignment, and said he confessed to some chilling of enthusiasm for the sea due to his seasickness. As an ensign, when he was in command of the destroyer Decatur in 1907, it ran aground in the Philippines. And although the ship was freed, the next day he was court-martialed and received a letter of reprimand. By 1909, he was assigned to the first submarine flotilla and command of the submarine Plunger. And that began a lifelong interest in submarines. And for much of his early career, he um, developed as an officer and commander in the submarine branch, including um, in World War I when he was assigned as an aide to Rear Admiral Sam Samuel Robeson, who was the commander of the submarine forces of the United States Atlantic Fleet. In the early years after the First World War, Nimitz attended the Naval War College in 1922, two years before Yamamoto visited, and while Yamamoto was serving as naval attaché in Washington. And, strangely, like Yamamoto, he also lost part of a finger in an accident involving a diesel engine. Nimitz would always consider himself a submariner, but on the other hand, of course, he's gone down in history as the supreme commander of a carrier-based war. Nimitz alternated in the 1920s and 30s between sea commands and staff assignments within the Navy, 
and so he got a well-rounded knowledge of all aspects of naval command and strategy and warfare that were going to serve him well. Um, he was a major innovator innovator in the uh, refueling of ships uh, while they're underway, something that would be crucial during the uh, war in the Pacific. The day of the attack on Pearl Harbor, he was in Washington serving as chief of the Navigation Bureau. President Roosevelt had already met him and knew him quite well from frequent conversations uh, with him uh, over the previous three years, and he and he liked and respected uh, Nimitz. Uh, when um, Admiral Richardson retired from command of the Pacific Fleet in January 1941, Roosevelt um, asked Nimitz to assume the command there, but he declined, fatefully, believing it would be inappropriate to move ahead of some four dozen other more senior officers to accept the command. Instead, it went to Admiral Husband Kimmel, who um, Nimitz had known and respected. But after Pearl Harbor, Knox and Roosevelt decided to replace Kimmel, perhaps for just appearance's sake because of the surprise nature of the attack and damage that was done. That's a very hot topic in history, uh, whether Kimmel deserved to be removed or blamed for the attack, um, but we don't have time now to go into that. In any event, uh, Roosevelt and Knox came calling a second time, and this time Nimitz accepted the position. Of course, the fleet was at that point in very poor shape, bombed out at Pearl Harbor. Eventually, Nimitz would go on to be uh, named a fleet admiral in 1944 by Roosevelt, and he's one of only four admirals in American history to achieve five-star status. Another interesting fact about him, during the war in the Pacific, he would eventually come to command some 5,000 ships and more than 2 million men, which is more than any other commander in American military history ever. In personality, he was calm and affable. He got on well with both the high brass and the younger staff officers. He liked to tell stories. Um, he uh, didn't shy away from salty language uh, at times, but he was also could tend to be professorial. Uh, reporters covering conferences, uh, you know, in the Pacific uh, fleet area compared him to sort of college seminars, uh, very freewheeling discussion of ideas and so forth. When things sometimes got a little argumentative and uh, heated, Nimitz was usually had a great little story or anecdote to um, calm things down. He was cautious in his strategic thinking and thinking and, you know, certainly at the beginning had a good reason uh, to be so. But his quiet, affable personality also masked a man who was willing to take calculated gambles to double down from time to time. And although the United States would definitely be on the defensive, the strategic defensive after Pearl Harbor, Nimitz, backed by Knox, was willing to risk what could only have been a catastrophic defeat after Pearl Harbor if he thought the odds were in his favor. The Battle of Coral Sea had been one such roll of the dice, and although the although catastrophe had been avoided, the U.S. had lost a carrier in the encounter. So let's talk a little bit now about the prelude to the battle. 
The problem for Yamamoto was how to lure the U.S. carrier fleet into a compact area in the vast Pacific Ocean where he could strike the decisive blow and wipe it out. In a way, it's similar to the problem that generals faced in 18th century Europe when European armies were so small and the continent of Europe was so large that armies could avoid battle if they wanted to until they were ready to fight. In order to bring the U.S. carrier fleet into battle, the Japanese would have to threaten something somewhere that the United States could not afford to lose and would have to protect at all costs. And that something was Hawaii. Hawaii is sometimes described as the place on earth that is the farthest away from anywhere else. And if you look at a map of the Pacific, the Hawaiian islands sit in the middle of this ocean, literally thousands of miles from anywhere else. The whole purpose for the United States acquiring these islands was as an outer barrier to expansion by anyone else, European or Japanese, into the eastern Pacific near the shores of the United States. With the loss of the Philippines and Guam, it was the hinge point of American naval and air power now between uh, the Alaskan islands in the north, the California coastline to the east, and America's ally, Australia, in the south. Yamamoto's plan, therefore, was to threaten, if not take, the Hawaiian islands, which he was sure would provoke an all-out defensive resistance that would include the American carriers. Yamamoto's thought process was mirrored in Washington by Knox and in Hawaii by Nimitz. Both were well aware of the desperate need to maintain their naval and air base at Hawaii and were determined at all costs not to lose it. It could just as easily be converted to a Japanese naval and air base that would cut off the routes to Australia be a staging point for an invasion of the American West Coast, or at the very least, anchor a Japanese perimeter that would make any attempt to approach or attack Japan impossible. Midway Island was and is actually two tiny atolls, little islands formed by volcanoes, a little over 1,000 miles to the northwest of Pearl Harbor. If Pearl Harbor were the center of a clock face, Midway would be at about the 10 o'clock position, a thousand miles away. Midway had an air base with land-based army bombers and fighters there, which, again, if taken by the Japanese, could just as easily be converted to a staging area for an eventual Japanese assault by air, sea, and land on the Hawaiian stronghold. Yamamoto calculated that the Americans would regard any assault on these tiny outposts as the prelude to an invasion, and again he was correct. Therefore, his plan called for a preliminary assault on Midway Island, which would draw the American carrier fleet, his real objective, out of Hawaii to sink the invading armada, at which point his carrier fleet would pounce on the carriers coming out of the vastness of the Pacific. So far, so good. It was a plan of cunning and surprise that Sun Tzu would have appreciated. It did have a flaw, however. The flaw was not in Yamamoto's strategic plan per se. It was in what he didn't know. 
It was the fact that American cryptologists had partially broken the Japanese fleet's wireless communication code. In the weeks before the attack, the Americans had forewarning of it and the general approach it would take. With that knowledge, Nimitz and his crew prepared his own surprise for Yamamoto and the Japanese fleet, particularly the fearsome Kido Butai, commanded by one of Japan's best admirals, Chuichi Nagumo. More about him in the Kido Butai in a minute. The Americans had one other crucial technological advantage over the Japanese, radar installed on the American carriers and at Midway that would give them advance warning of any approaching enemy aircraft. And while this was only a tactical advantage in the battle, it certainly helped. The bigger point was that Japan didn't have it. Japanese carriers and fleet at sea had to rely on combat air patrol, CAP as it was called, aircraft flying continuously, circling their vulnerable carriers to spot incoming enemy aircraft. The Americans would also employ combat air patrol to intercept incoming flights, but radar was sure, while CAP was hit or miss. Radar was still primitive, but it, uh, it, it couldn't tell you exactly how many aircraft or what kind they were. But you knew they were there, approximately how far away they were, and the angle of approach they were taking. The Japanese would pay a heavy price for their lack of this technology during the battle, as we will see, while the Americans were never taken by surprise. Information and knowledge in real time were to prove to be the decisive edge in this contest. But the Americans also had one crucial disadvantage in the battle, their torpedoes. The Mark 13 air-launched torpedo was a 2,200-pound weapon introduced in 1938. It had not been adequately tested, but was the only one available. Its use required release at less than 60 feet and slow airspeed. Over a year after the Battle of Midway, and after incessant complaints that they didn't work, the Bureau of Ordnance ran a test with over 100 torpedoes and found only 31% gave a satisfactory run. American torpedo pilots watched in amazement, when they survived the low-level approach at slow speed and launched, that torpedoes with a perfect 90-degree angle approach either struck the enemy ship with no explosion or ran underneath the enemy ship, missing it altogether. Complaints had been registered with the Bureau of Ordnance and the Navy in Washington before the battle, questioning the efficacy of the Mark 13, but the administration in Washington stubbornly clung to the belief that it was pilot error, not the torpedoes, that were the cause. This deficiency would have dire consequences on torpedo pilots at Midway. Again, given the vast distances and the enormously complex task of routing several disparate fleets to rendezvous at the right time and the right place, the Japanese would take time to organize and actually move their fleets into position. In the meantime, the American Naval Command in Hawaii conceived of a plan to ambush the Japanese carriers that might just work. One of the American carriers, Yorktown, 
which had suffered heavy damage at the Battle of Coral Sea that I told you about earlier, had limped back into Pearl Harbor unfit for further fighting. It was estimated that it would take weeks, maybe months, to put her back in fighting trim. Nimitz inspected the damage to the Yorktown's hull in dry dock personally. He then ordered the shipyard to work round the clock and make her seaworthy in three days. It was a desperate order, but astonishingly, it happened. Yorktown put to sea again, with crews continuing to work on her. Pilots and planes from the damaged and dry-docked carrier Saratoga were reassigned to Yorktown, with the carrier's Enterprise and Hornet positioning themselves, in secret, almost due north of Hawaii and to the northeast of Midway. And by the way, there were carriers back then, and then there were big carriers. The Americans would fight the battle at Midway with three big carriers in terms of size and number of planes they could carry. They were all Yorktown-class carriers, uh, in which all three carriers were uh, 770 feet long and displaced 25,500 long tons. Their complement included up to 90 aircraft using three elevators, and they could make over 32 knots at top speed, which is pretty fast for any naval vessel. Hornet, the newest carrier that would fight at Midway, had a slightly lower complement of just 72 aircraft. The Japanese carriers ranged in size. Akagi, you remember um, former ship that uh, Yamamoto himself commanded, but although not this time, was built in 1927, displaced 36,000 long tons, carried 91 aircraft, and could cruise at about 32 knots at top speed. Kaga displaced 38,000 long tons, carried 108 aircraft, and pushed a slightly slower 28 knots. Hiryu was a lighter carrier at just 20,000 long tons with 73 aircraft, but faster, able to steam at 34 knots. And the last carrier was Soryu, which is Japanese for Blue Dragon. It was built in 1937, it was the newest one, and displaced only 16,500 long tons, but it was able to make 34 knots and also carried 72 aircraft. Between these four carriers, out of the usual six that made up the Kido Butai, you remember those two aircraft carriers that went back to Tokyo uh, after the Battle of the Coral Sea wouldn't, wouldn't be there, uh, they could deploy 344 aircraft of different types. Zeros, dive bombers, torpedo planes. In reply, the American carriers could deploy 216 planes, plus the fighters and bombers on Midway. The Japanese expected the American carriers to sortie out of Hawaii to the southwest of Midway when the attack began excuse me, on the, uh, to the um, southeast of Midway, when the attack began on the island. They were not expecting the American carriers to be in the location they were, and without radar were blindsided by air attacks from the American carriers when they came. Their own carrier fleet, the Kido Butai under the command of Admiral Nagumo, would approach Midway from the due west, the 9 o'clock position. The Americans, under the command of Admirals Jack Fletcher, who was in overall command and uh, situated on Yorktown, and Raymond Spruance, who was um, commander of the 
of Hornet and Enterprise and was on the Enterprise, would not approach midway from the south, from Pearl Harbor, as the Japanese expected. Instead, they had left days before and were waiting for them to the northeast of their position as Nagumo approached. Now, I should mention that although this battle pivots and sways around the fate of these seven aircraft carriers, there were a host of other ships on both sides hovering on the perimeter, waiting to move in for the kill, if and when the opportunity presented itself, but not while the enemy's carriers were still afloat and active. In the first place, there was a large invasion fleet under the Japanese Admiral Kondo, consisting of a number of cruisers, battleships, and transport ships for the marines who would actually invade and occupy the atolls. In fact, it was Kondo's fleet as it approached 550 miles to the southwest of Midway that was first spotted by American scout aircraft at 9 a.m. on June 3rd. Behind Nagumo's formidable task force was a mass of battleships, cruisers, and destroyers under the personal command of Yamamoto, on his superb super battleship Yamato. Once the American carriers were sunk, his surface ships would blast what remained afloat to the bottom of the Pacific. The American carriers were also protected by an array of heavy cruisers and destroyers, but no battleships, thanks to Pearl Harbor. And so it began. The American army bombers at Midway struck first, or rather, attempted to bomb Kondo's approaching fleet to the southwest. Although initial reports claimed four ships sunk, in fact the raid was a complete bust. No ships were hit. One army pilot reportedly claimed that hitting a ship with a bomb from high altitudes, and these were army land bombers, not navy dive bombers that get in close, was like trying to drop a marble from eye level on a scurrying cockroach on the floor. There was one small victory when an American torpedo plane managed to damage and set afire a Japanese oiler, uh, but that was it. Kondo, Nagumo, and Yamoto had expected a reaction from Midway Island, and in fact they wanted it. Anti-aircraft fire and zeros knocked down many American aircraft out of the sky, and Nagumo launched his own air attack on Midway Island the next day at 4.30 in the morning. Midway radar and a couple of scout planes saw them coming and spotted two aircraft carriers in the bargain. But the Japanese bombers arrived at 6.20 a.m. and a rain of fire began. Damage was heavy at the U.S. base, and then an American counterattack with fighter planes was crushed by the Zeros. 28 U.S. Marine fighters that took off after uh, the bombers to intercept them, only two survived. Seven Japanese aircraft were down. American bombers from Midway then took off before the Japanese attack arrived to bomb the aircraft carriers that had been seen uh, the day before. Japanese flight fighters flying cap around the carriers shot 17 of them out of the sky and no hits were made on any Japanese ship. One Army B-26 crashing out of the sky nearly hit the bridge of Akagi where Nagumo was standing. Based on reports from his returning aircraft regarding the condition of the airbase and its potential for further attacks, 
Nagumo concluded that he needed to make one more raid on Midway Island to knock out its defenses and uh, potential for air attack altogether. There was also a second American air attack at just before 8 a.m. that further suggested a need for a final death blow to the air base at Midway. It's between the hours of 7, 8, 8, 7 and 8 a.m. on the bridge of Akagi that things get interesting. In the first place, at around 7 o'clock in the morning, the American carriers were now within range of the Japanese carriers and had already launched an attack that would take some time to arrive, but the planes were in the air. Torpedo planes, dive bombers, and some fighter escorts. They would not arrive at the same time, but that wouldn't matter. What would matter would be what Nagumo would do to receive what he didn't know was coming. In fact, one of the American carriers was sighted by a Japanese scout plane at 7.40 a.m., but his transmission... You know, to the ship in, in, in his transmission, the scout plane neglected to mention whether he had seen a carrier or not. Nagumo demanded the plane be made to ascertain whether there was a carrier in the force, which took another 20 minutes. At 8 o'clock, he knew about at least one American carrier lurking, strangely due east of him. Unfortunately, Nagumo was now faced with a tactical problem. The massive strike on Midway aircraft were now returning and had to land or would have to ditch into the sea. Nagumo elected to let them all land first before launching torpedo planes and other aircraft at the American carrier. And by the way, the situation on the other Japanese carriers was essentially the same. They were all following orders from Nagumo on Akagi. Preparing to receive returning bombers and fighters, readying other fighters for cap patrol, and so on. Again, the crucial technology, radar, meant that Nagumo was unaware of the impending airstrikes, not from unpracticed, ungainly army bombers at high altitude, but from Navy dive bombers and torpedo planes backed by fighters. Nonetheless, the possibility that another air attack might be impending from somewhere out there, meant that Japanese zeros were on the alert in the skies overhead. Admiral Spruance was approaching the Japanese carrier force when he received instructions from the overall commander, Jack Fletcher, on Yorktown, to launch a strike at the carriers as soon as he could. This was the one that had left at 7 o'clock. Fletcher then launched his own attack from the deck of Yorktown at 8 o'clock. Another tragedy followed. In the first place, it took Enterprise and Hornet, under Spruance's command, an hour to launch some 100 aircraft. Japanese launch times were measured in minutes, and usually in single digits. Much of uh, Hornet's aircraft took a wrong course and absolutely missed the carriers, returning having seen and hit nothing. Another squadron ran out of fuel, and ten aircraft had to ditch. What aircraft made it to Akagi from Hornet did so piecemeal, easy meat for the Zeros, and were blown out of the air, hitting nothing 
either by defective torpedoes or dive bombing. Nonetheless, the continuous waves of attacks kept the Japanese carriers and their fighter protection on the defensive and unable to launch an attack. But eventually the waves would stop coming, and then it would be their turn. At 10 o'clock, a new attack group from Yorktown approached from the southeast and was spotted by Japanese Zeros flying combat air patrol. Very quickly, once again, they rallied to intercept this latest attack, leaving the Japanese carriers Akagi and Kaga stripped of air cover. And it's at this moment that fate, luck, chance, whatever you want to call it, intervened that saved the heretofore luckless Americans at 10.22 a.m. Yamamoto and Nimitz had both doubled down, and here was the flip of the coin, the, fl- the turning of a card that meant all the difference. As the Zeros flooded the southeast sector, and you can imagine here if the Japanese carriers are, you know, the center of the clock face. This would be like coming in from the five o'clock direction. Two flights from Enterprise arrived from the southwest, which would be like the eight o'clock position, and the northeast at the one o'clock position. They were without fighter escorts, and they were dive bombers. No defective torpedoes to worry about here. With essentially nothing to impede their attack but anti-aircraft fire from the carriers and their escorts in the immediate area, they spotted the hulking carriers Akagi and Kaga in the distance. Meanwhile, aboard the two Japanese carriers, actually all of the Japanese carriers, the top and hangar decks were in disarray. The constant waves of futile American attacks had prevented the deck crews from arming their attack aircraft with bombs or torpedoes, but the ordnance was piled all over the decks, waiting for the moment when the bombers and torpedo planes could be loaded. Normally, such ordnance would have been safely stowed below deck, but there it was, in stacks and piles, right out in the open. Worse, the constant need to refuel the fighter aircraft as they landed and took off again to continue beating back attacks had resulted in fuel hoses snaking all over the decks filled with gasoline and spilled fuel on the deck. Now you have to imagine these huge ships with their flat tops with aircraft, bombs, torpedoes, and fuel lines scattered about. The deck below the top deck contained more aircraft, out of the way, but fueled up, ready to go up the elevators on the side of the ship, be wheeled off and spotted to take off. The midway attack force had by now largely landed on the two carriers and was being refueled. Nagumo and his officers on the bridge of Akagi raised their binoculars to the sky as tiny black dots in the blue sky were seen approaching the carriers. To their growing anxiety, they watched intensely until the dreadful truth was confirmed. Anti-aircraft fire erupted from the escorting cruisers and capital ships, but at the altitude the bombers approached, no hits were scored. Evasive maneuvering began in anticipation of the assault, 
but these were dive bombers who swooped down would result in a final approach at mast height before they released their bombs. The leader of the attacking force from Enterprise was then-Lieutenant Commander Wade McCluskey, who later became a rear admiral. In an account he wrote later, this is how he described the initial contact with the Japanese Kidobutai carrier force, and I quote, Peering through my binoculars, which were practically glued to my eyes, I saw dead ahead, about 35 miles distant, the welcome sight of the Jap carrier striking force. They were in what appeared to be a circular disposition, with four carriers in the center, well-spaced, and an outer screen of six to eight destroyers and inner support ships composed of two battleships and either four or six cruisers. I then broke radio silence and reported the contact to the Enterprise. Immediately thereafter, I gave attack instructions to my group. Picking the two nearest carriers in the line of approach, I ordered Scouting 6 to follow my section in attacking the carrier on the immediate left and Bombing 6 to take the right-hand carrier. These two carriers were the largest in the formation and later were determined to be Kaga and Akagi. One remarkable fact stood out as we approached the diving point. Not a Jap fighter plane was there to molest us. Another American pilot in McCluskey's attack group on the carrier Kaga described what happened when he released his bombs over the ship. And these uh, dive bombers are generally armed with one 500-pound bomb and two 100-pound bombs under their wings. And I'm going to quote, We were coming down in all directions on the port side of the carrier. I recognized her as the Kaga, and she was enormous. The target was utterly satisfying. I saw a bomb hit just behind where I was aiming. I saw the deck rippling and curling back in all directions, exposing a great section of the hangar below. I saw my 500-pound bomb hit right abreast of the carrier's island. Then two 100-pound bombs struck in the forward area of the parked planes. Kaga sustained four or five direct bomb hits in the attack, causing devastating damage and starting numerous fires that in a short time consumed the ship from stem to stern. Explosions racked the decks above and below and black smoke billowed out of her into the sky that could be seen for miles by the rest of the fleet. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Commander Richard Best and two wingmen dived on the other carrier, Akagi, the one that Admiral Yuma was on. The result was only a single hit, but it was enough. elevator amidships, ricocheted into the hangar deck and then exploded. Almost a miracle shot. Fueled and bomb-laden aircraft began exploding in a chain reaction that turned the hangar deck into an inferno within seconds. And in another, and setting off a chain reaction fires throughout the ship. Another bomb exploded so close to the stern of the ship, although it technically missed it, that it damaged Akagi's rudder and steering, but also literally tore the flight deck from the ship's bulkhead at the stern, allowing air into the hangar 
deck from another source to fuel the fires there, uh, which continued to set off explosions. The fires spread and couldn't be brought under control. Nagumo and his immediate staff were forced to abandon the ship and transfer his command to another ship. Astonishingly, the last wave of 17 dive bombers, these from Yorktown, under Lieutenant Commander Max Leslie, arrived at almost the same time, and they zeroed in on the carrier Soryu. Three direct hits were scored, and once again, gasoline ignited on the decks, igniting bombs, ammunition, and fueled aircraft, crippling the ship. In an astonishing four minutes, the American dive bomber attacks had crippled not only three powerful Japanese carriers, but obliterated their hundreds of aircraft. Although still afloat, with no below-water line damage, all three carriers were scuttled later that day on Yamamoto's orders for fear that, dead in the water as they were, they'd be captured later by the Americans and rehabilitated. But that left the carrier Hiryu, the fourth carrier, still afloat and functional. Hiryu had been attacked by a wing of bombers from Yorktown, but had sustained no hits. As the Americans vanished from the skies, Hiryu launched a counterattack of some 18 carrier bombers and six Zeros for escort against what turned out to be Yorktown. They followed the retreating American aircraft until Yorktown was seen and attacked. Three direct hits were scored, holing her deck, extinguishing her propulsion boilers, and hitting an anti-aircraft mount. Without, however, the array of gasoline, bombs, and aircraft on its deck, the fires were brought under control and power restored in about an hour after the attack. But at that point, a second wave from Hiryu arrived with ten torpedo planes and six Zeros. Thinking that Yorktown, because it now seemed to be just, you know, underway and and looking fairly normal, uh, they thought that the Yorktown must have sunk from the hits inflicted by their comrades and thought that they'd found a second carrier and proceeded to devastate it, ramming home two below-the-waterline torpedo strikes that crippled Yorktown once and for all. All power was lost and with the flooding in the lower decks, the ship began to list heavily to the port side. Japanese were cheered by the thought of having sunk two of the three known American carriers and now contemplated a final strike on what they believed to be the last one from Hiryu, but the Americans beat them to the punch. A scout plane from Yorktown located Hiryu in the afternoon, and Enterprise immediately sent a strike of 24 dive bombers to attack. This time the Zeros buzzed in the skies over the last carrier but couldn't down them all. Hiryu took four or five direct hits, leaving her crippled and a floating hulk, and was then scuttled as well. 
Her commanders, Rear Admiral Taman Yamaguchi and Captain Tomeo Kaku, committed suicide going down with the ship and, as has been pointed out by later historians, depriving Japan of two of its best carrier officers. In time, the truth became known that the Japanese had lost four major carriers while the Americans had lost but one. In continuing action over the next 24 hours, the Americans suffered one destroyer sunk. 150 aircraft were destroyed in the battle and 307 killed. The Japanese, in addition to the loss of four carriers, had one heavy cruiser sunk and another damaged. 248 aircraft were destroyed and 3,057 officers, sailors, and aviators were killed. days following the battle, there was widespread confusion in the American media about the battle. No doubt this was due to heavy censorship of information and confusion. Accounts of Japanese losses varied widely, often with fictitious numbers of battleships and cruisers sunk, when in fact Japan lost almost none. It was clear, however, that America had won the battle but the magnitude of the victory was somewhat obscure and vague in most accounts. For example, most of the accounts concentrated, and wrongly, on the idea that a number of battleships and cruisers and so forth had been sunk. The American public had still this idea, you know, in their heads that those were the supreme uh, weapons uh, at sea, but as we've seen, the Navy uh, knew better and wasted no time on the escort battleships and cruisers, you know, when the opportunity presented itself to attack the carriers. Um, also, the uh, American media was uh, confused about the cause or the source of the American victory. For example, on June 9th, 1942, the New York Times reported, quote, so far as we can now learn, and there's the wartime censorship for you, the main damage to the Japanese fleet off Midway was inflicted by our land-based airplanes. The battle shows what land-based air power can do to naval and air power attacking from the open sea 
when that land-based power is alert, well-organized, uh, courageous, and exists in sufficient quantity. But that was completely wrong. The Army Air Force B-17s and B-26s didn't score a single hit on the Japanese carriers, or anything else for that matter, except a single oiler. Even more controversial was a full banner headline by the Chicago Tribune on June 7th that trumpeted, quote, Jap fleet smashed by U.S., two carriers sunk at Midway. Well, at least they correctly zeroed in on the carriers as the important ships, but they got the number wrong. But a byline below that was, quote, Navy had word of Jap plan to strike at sea, exposing the fact, uh, or maybe exposing the fact, that the United States, through its code cracking, had uh, learned of the attack, which was true. Um, Needless to say, the Navy brass and the president um, were aghast at that story because they didn't want the Japanese to know that we had cracked their code because they would obviously create another one. Um, So it it set off a... flurry of indignation and anger. President Roosevelt was so angry he contemplated sending Marines to occupy the Tribune building in Chicago. And uh, eventually, a grand jury was summoned to um, possibly indict the paper and and the reporter who um, wrote the story for espionage. That didn't happen, but um, it was quite a controversy at the time. In any event, the Japanese didn't catch on to the headline or didn't notice it and didn't realize that their code had been cracked for a while. So what was the legacy and the impact of the Battle of Midway? Well, let's consider the counterfactual as we sometimes do. If Japan, in other words, if Japan had won the battle and sunk the three American carriers. First, Midway Island would probably have been occupied threatening Hawaii. The carrier Saratoga, then in dry dock in Seattle, would have been the only American carrier in the Pacific. The first Essex-class carrier under construction would not arrive until the end of 1942. The Japanese options to extend their perimeter of defense in the Pacific by taking Hawaii, Samoa, Alaska, or Australia would have been on the table and there wouldn't have been much that the U.S. could have done about it. It's doubtful that even if the United States had suffered such a setback and lost Hawaii itself, that it would have sued for peace. On the other hand, the Pacific War would undoubtedly have gone on much longer, and who knows how it would have ended. As it was, only the carriers Shokaku and Zukaku were left operational, that is to say the big carriers, were left operational for Japan in the Pacific, and they too would be hunted from then on by the Americans. One final big carrier, Taiho, was not commissioned by Japan until 1944. The other carriers built were either light or what are known as fleet carriers, much inferior ships to the big carriers. The United States, on the other hand, launched 24 Essex-class carriers beginning in late 1942 through the end of the war, each capable of carrying between 90 and 100 aircraft. Without the ominous threat of the Kido Butai, 
the U.S. Army and Marines, with the support of the Navy, began the Guadalcanal Campaign and the slow subjugation of the Solomon Islands, which most military historians consider the turning point of the war in the Pacific. The Japanese never again initiated another offensive by land or sea in the Pacific after Midway. Interestingly, Hollywood director John Ford, who was very famous in Hollywood, um, he'd already won an Oscar in 1940 as Best Director for The Grapes of Wrath and would win two more in 1941 for Best Picture and Best Director in How Green Was My Valley, earned another one, Best Documentary, for his riveting documentary film, The Battle of Midway. The film included many sequences of actual air pilot footage of attacks on the Japanese fleet and the defense of Midway Island, where Ford was actually located during the attack. Uh, And this is sort of a new level of uh, uh, reporting and information to uh, the civilian population uh, in World War II. Uh, All of the great powers used um, film to, um, usually for propaganda purposes, and uh, included film crews and uh, so forth with their armies uh, and fleets and uh, also uh, with um, their aircraft. And the United States was no exception. Uh, You can see today uh, vintage footage, black and white, although they can colorize them now using computers, uh, of um, actual uh, fighting in the skies and um, Japanese ships seen you know, below um, the pilots uh, in the ocean, you know, make, maneuvering and so on and so forth. Um, so uh, that's preserved uh, for all time. Well, we've come to the end of another podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, This was a tremendous battle um, and one of the greatest naval victories of all time. It truly did bend the arc of history.